Hello and welcome to Slycast. This is a fan-made podcast that looks at the career of Sylvester Stallone. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing a, a celebration and analysis of his entire career from his earliest days all the way right up until 2014 and beyond. I am Craig Cohen and I have with me today Jeff Ferry. Good evening, everyone. And Jeff Hewlett. How's it going? All right, guys. So here we are. I know we've talked about this for a long time. Uh, we all participate over on the Facebook group for the ACPN, which is the Adventure Club Podcast Network, which is an excellent network that has a ton of podcasts that you'll enjoy. I do Camel Clutch Cinema with Guy Hutchinson, where we talk about movies that star wrestlers or have wrestling in them. Jeff and Jeff have both been guests on the Flux Capacicast, the only Back to the Future podcast in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a guy Hutchinson does about 31 other podcasts. Most yes, of the people listening yeah. probably do a podcast with him. <laughs> yes. yes, the hardest working man in podcasting, and uh, he really uh, is involved in some great, great shows. So we were having a discussion on there. I, I, I believe that's where it started. It, it was a, a, you know, a, a long thread on the the ACPN Facebook page. And feel free to go over there and uh, like that page and uh, interact with us after you. Listen to this episode if you haven't already. And, uh, you know, we were basically all sharing our shared love of Sylvester Stallone. And we thought it would be really fun to sort of sit down and just, you know, based on our experiences to date, you know, look back at his career and, you know, see what movies we've seen, what movies we've missed. This by no means is going to be a, you know, a huge dissection of his career in terms of movie analysis and stuff like that. But what we're going to do is we're going to highlight his career. Uh, we'll definitely mention everything he's done. And then we're going to go through and give everybody sort of a primer. This is a <laughs> Sylvester <laughs> Stallone 101. So uh, before we really get into his, his early career, I wanted to sort of talk with you guys about what your sort of earliest Stallone memories are. Jeff Ferry, I'll start with you. Like, what's your early Sylvester Stallone experience like? I would say my Stallone experience, it was a lot of VHS mid-80s Stallone. And, of course, with, like, Rocky 1 and 2 thrown in there. Like, that's a lot of, like, Cobra, your Nighthawks, you know, that type of stuff. And being back in the 80s, you had what you had on tape, so... If you had Nighthawks on tape, you might watch it 30 or 40 times. Yes. Or if you got HBO, you might see over the top 50 times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just be amazed that there is actually a movie about arm wrestling. <laughs> yes. What about you, Jeff Hewlett? Well, thinking back on it, I think uh, I was around before the dawn of VHS or home VHS. So my first experience with seeing a Stallone movie that I can remember was watching Rocky – uh, the first one on television with my grandparents, uh, I want to say around, what, 1980-ish, somewhere around there. But the first movie that I saw in a theater that I can remember was Rocky Three. So strangely enough, that led to a, an odd uh, viewing order. So I saw Rocky Three before I saw Rocky Two, yeah. because there was really no way for me to see Rocky Two at the time. So I saw three in the theater and then saw two afterwards. So uh, very strange a way of doing things. And I think after that, it was kind of a, you know, the HBO era came around and I started seeing some other things and come to the mid to late 80s. I, that was when I really picked up on my Stallone viewing uh, Cobra, of course, uh, Over the Top and uh, Lock Up, some of my favorites. <laughs> Lock Up. Craig and I watched Lock Up together not long ago. Really, really great stuff. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth on Stallone. It was Rocky really brought me to him. Yeah, I, I think my entryway was was definitely very similar to yours, Jeff. Rocky three was probably my gateway. I think you know just based on who Rocky you know Rocky three was really marketed for. You know it was going straight for the kids. You know you had between Mr. T and Hulk Hogan and just you know. Removing Rocky even further from reality was, I, I, <laughs> I think, really what got a lot of uh, the younger kids on board. And then beyond that, I remember really responding to like First Blood and mm -hmm. you know Rambo First Blood Part Two, 
And for the longest time, those were movies that I would watch on TV as painful as it was to watch because, you know, it was a, a gorgeous two, three, five, one aspect ratio, super widescreen film that was kind of squashed for TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I still remember. Yeah, I still remember getting the DVD um, when it came out and just being like in awe of how you know beautiful that film looked. But yeah, besides that, you know, that was pretty much my my entryway, and and I I think we can all agree that Cobra was a very important film for all of us. Huge, Co- <laughs> yeah. Cobra is like a surreal movie when you're like ten or eleven years old. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I I, I know that um, that a lot of people, including us, cannot wait until we get to the the Cobra episode. Dying for it. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, we're going to sort of focus on. Stallone's early years. He was born as Michael Sylvester Gardenzio Stallone in New York City in 1946. Lived in New York and then later on moved to Philadelphia. And he had kind of an interesting pre-Hollywood career. He got a um, scholarship to the American College of Switzerland where he acted as a girls athletic coach and in his spare time he starred in a school production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman which sort of you know, gave him the acting bug. And he returned to New York City in 1969 to chase his dream, which is sort of where we're going to pick up things today. So basically, from that point, he did um, some really, really small work. There was a movie called No Place to Hide in 1970 that was sort of about a, a politically motivated group of students who planned bombings of companies who do business with dictators in middle American countries. This is a film I know very little about. It was recut after Rocky, after he was successful and called Rebel. And it doesn't have the greatest rating on IMDb. I'm not sure if either one of you um, have too much knowledge of this film. Can't Um, say that I do. uh, Yeah, I I know of it. And if you read the write-up about it, it sounds interesting until you find the trailer online. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's not as interesting. It's an obvious, very low-budget film. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about these early, you know, th- these early Stallone films. And and I know when we when we get a little little a couple years removed from what we're talking about right now, we're gonna sort of get an indicator of 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 where Stallone was going. But that same year, in 1970, he did The Party at Kitty and Studs, which is another movie. Um, it was a softcore, uh, a pornographic film, and. After Rocky, again, it was sort of recut and marketed as the Italian Stallion. Now, (laughs) (laughs) everybody wanted some of the, you know, some of that Stallone money. Now, the party at Kitty and Studs, the only footage I've seen from it is sort of this this trailer that was put together to promote the release of the Italian Stallion. Have have either of you guys actually sat down and watched the party at Kitty and Studs? Do Honestly, I have to answer that question? <laughs> I didn't have the heart to do it, man. We won't judge right. you, Jeff Ferry. Okay, well, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I managed to find – they had, I saw the trailer, and then they had about 40 minutes of it you could get your hands on. Okay. And you didn't miss anything. <laughs> it, is, it is as bad as you might think it could be. It's, I know it's – they recut it. It's supposed to be softcore porn. Yeah. I mean – it maybe rates as like a Cinemax two in the morning film. Yeah, right? I, th- I think that was the, the you know the case with that film. I mean, nobody was attempting to make a, a serious artistic statement. Somebody was making yeah. to you know looking to turn a little bit money of money into a little bit more money. I mean, even for a seventies whatever they were trying to be softcore porn film, it's it's bad even for that. I mean, there is if you need the full Stallone. They show it. <laughs> he basically has said about that film that he was at the lowest point of his career. He he had no money, um, and it was either that or basically go out and you know rob somebody. Uh, so he was wow. a desperate, starving actor, and uh, you know he did what he had to do. And uh, there's probably you know thousands upon thousands of those stories where you know they did their party at Kitty and Studs and yeah. didn't make it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I did read one quote from him. I know there was a theater that was selling it for like $10,000 a night for somebody to see it. And somebody interviewed him about it. And he said, for $10,000 a night, I'll show up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a better use of your money. Yeah, really? So in 1971, he had uh, what can 
only be I, I guess nowadays you'd call it a cameo, but back then he was a nobody, so it's basically <laughs> a bit part in the Woody Allen film Bananas, which was a comedy. And it was about a bumbling New Yorker who, after being dumped by his activist girlfriend, travels to a tiny Latin American nation and becomes involved in its latest rebellion. But the scene with Stallone involves some uh, muggers on uh, a subway train, and there's no dialogue in this scene. Hmm. Yeah, I saw it. It's, a, it's actually a pretty funny scene. It I mean, is. Get, it it yeah. is. You know, you got Stallone and another, you know, goon sort of, you know, wreaking havoc on a, a, a subway train. And Woody Allen sort of reading his paper, you know, trying his best to uh, avoid uh, interacting with them. And they end up really giving a, an old lady a hard time. And, and finally, Woody's had enough and he grabs him by the shoulders and, and uh, pushes him out the door uh, at the next stop. And before they have a chance to get back in the car and he turns his back and then sure enough, the doors had opened again and, and they were able to get in. Uh, it is a funny scene. And, and if you do some searching, uh, you can find uh, those little clips yeah, it's funny. I, as I watched the clip, I thought to myself, this is a little foreshadowing of uh, his working on the docks in Rocky One, where he's shaking people down for money. Right? It's a little prep work. Yeah. He, was, he was working for Gazo back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So then after that, he had he had an appearance in another movie that um, I'm familiar with, but I've never seen called Clute from 1971. Um, and it starred Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland and, and Roy Scheider. And from what I understand and from what I've seen, he is basically an extra in a, like a nightclub scene. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that's one of the few. I think I've never seen that movie. Yeah, I, I, I was watching some of it and there was a, a disco, you know, like uh, not well, not a disco. I guess it was pre-disco, but, you know, a, a, a New York City nightlife scene and – from what I had read, he is in that scene. So at this point, I don't think we've really talked about anything that is essential to, you know, the the legend that is Sylvester Stallone. And, and what we uh, what really, is, you know, kind of blows it open for us is the 1974 film he did, The Lords of Flatbush, which I didn't watch until about a week ago when I knew we were finally going to sit down to do the show. Um, what about you guys? Same here. <laughs> I think I watched it the same time you did. I, I'd only heard of it in connection with Rocky. That's the only time I've heard of it. Yeah, and the inter- the interesting thing for me uh, about this, the takeaway was, I-, I knew that Henry Winkler was in it as well, and I was really surprised at how little Henry w- Winkler there was in this movie. Yeah, same oh, yeah. with me. I was really surprised by that when I got done watching it. I looked at it, I said to myself, you see him at the end in the, in the wedding scene, I'm like, I think you've only seen him for maybe a total of 10 minutes. Yeah, and and this, and this was right around the time that he um, – this is the same year that he started on Happy Days. So I don't know when he filmed this in relation to Happy Days. Happy Days started airing in January of 74, and uh, The Lords of Flatbush came out in May of 74. I, I, I'd imagine he, he had already – signed on to to happy days but while watching the lords of flatbush i you know before i really started looking at timetables i had this amazing alternate reality in my head where stallone ended up being the fonz <laughs> <laughs> and we had 10 years of of sly stallone on a sitcom but real quick before we talk about the lords of flatbush let's uh Let's just run down the plot real quick. Set in 1958, the coming-of-age story follows four Brooklyn teenagers known as the Lords of Flatbush. The Lords chase girls, steal cars, play pool, and hang out at a local malt shop. The film focuses on Chico attempting to win over Jane, a girl who wants little to do with him, and Stanley, who impregnates his girlfriend Franny, who wants him to marry her. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much just laid out the film for us. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. Can I ask you guys a question? Please. Did, did either one of you guys get this movie? <laughs> I, I got the the amazing doo-wop soundtrack. Oh, Listen, I, oh before we go on, we're gonna I'm gonna talk about this soundtrack. Okay. Yeah, oh, please and, do. I got no. I've got some things wanna, to say too. I want to find out who did the sound mixing. It's awful. And I want to punch them in the <laughs> face because Stallone will be in a scene and he's whispering and you like you're turning it up because you can't hear him and then <laughs> the music just ass on and it's not and it's for like two minutes yeah and you're like what what happened did you not have enough film did you just you need to run this you bought the music you're gonna play it i guess yeah this was one of those things we're watching it i said this is where stallone fell in love with the montage yeah really (laughs) it had to be some of the worst doo-wop i've ever heard it's terrible (laughs) it is terrible it's like 
public domain doo-wop. Yeah, it's like somebody really wanted a, a, a doo-wop soundtrack but didn't want to pay for the rights to real doo-wop songs. So I had some friends of theirs whip something up. It was rough. Yeah. Now, how about the Lords themselves? Did they seem like the least imposing gang? You basically had two members, Chico and Stanley, who looked like they could really throw down. And then you basically had uh, Butchie, who was Henry Winkler, and and then uh, Wimpy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Wimpy. The other guy was yeah, Wimpy. Really. I had to look his name up because I'm like, did they ever say his name? No, like, I, I mean, at this point, they had to be the least imposing gang ever. Well, you know, the only the only gang I can put in their category is the Sweat Hogs. <laughs> okay, nice. that's how intimidating they were. Yeah. Well, I think Stallone, the scene where he's yoking the guy up over the pool table, that he was pretty imposing at the time. But the other guys just didn't seem to have anything behind them. Yeah, you know, I didn't think if I was walking down the street and I saw them coming at me, I wouldn't cross the street to get away from them. I just walk right through them. Yeah, I mean, Stallone by himself a couple times in the movie, in the pool hall, when he's in the um, jewelry store, Yep. when it's just him and the guy. Like, him by himself was imposing, but, like, his three clowns that he had with him, they weren't. I mean, like... Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I gotta say, Stallone really did that role well. As far as... I mean, the movie wasn't a great film by any stretch, but as I finished watching the movie, I thought to myself, you know, like, Stallone did a decent job selling that character. I felt it was kind of believable. Yeah, and, and I gotta say, watching this, I can't imagine that had Rocky not happened, that he would have eventually sort of found his way. He, he, you know, he might not have had the superstar career that he had. But, you know, it's funny that he sort of has this reputation, you know, where a lot of people laugh him and his talents off. But in the Lords of Flatbush, he delivers a good performance. Definitely. He's, he's so good in it. By about three quarters of the way through the film, I could care less what's happening with Chico. Yeah. Yeah. That guy stinks. Like He absolutely does. He probably has the more interesting storyline. Yeah. And I don't care. Anything that goes him and the girl are worthless. <laughs> they well, are just like two cardboard cutouts the whole time. Really? And did you notice that it was it me or was it Chico's storyline never really resolved? No, not no. really. I mean, he, no. he, he never really gets the girl. Mm-mm. I mean, you have Sly I, telling him off near the end. But that's about that like you don't know if he if he turned over a new leaf because Sly gave him a talking to or what you don't have no idea. Yeah, or was the resolution the fight that they had? Yeah. And then the worst car hit I've ever seen in my life <laughs> when uh, Henry Winkler is sort of hit by a car. Yeah. <laughs> the only Chico scene I really enjoyed was when him and and Jane went to the drive-in. Oh. That was a good one. My favorite Chico scene had to be the one where he has her uh, in in the park at night, and he's trying to do his thing, and she's like, "Oh, Chico, you made a mess." <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so let, I guess let's get to the the real meat of the movie, which is the Stanley and Franny storyline, which is Stallone um, and Maria Smith, and basically what happens is on a what at the beach at night. Stanley and Franny have sex and she ends up being late and then the rest of the movie sort of deals with him doing the right thing and uh and and I guess marrying her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah because you're led to believe most of the way through that he's basically a creep like he's a pretty like low-life character most of the way through yeah it, it's funny you know you have this you know the whole you know Franny sort of idea that they're gonna get married and buy a duplex that the mother can live in with them. And they're going to, you know, have, have two kids and, you know, watch, you know, I think they talk about watching a a certain TV show, but it just, yeah, it it really didn't seem like he was the type of guy that you'd want to do that with. (laughs) But I mean, the resolution to the movie, Oh, sorry, Jeff, but the resolution to the movie with them getting married didn't really feel like a resolution to me because they didn't seem happy at all. So why would you root for them to get married? It was a weird resolution because, like, he, he comes around a little bit because he basically finds out that, you know, a spoiler alert for this 40-year-old movie, <laughs> that she's not pregnant. And he tells Chico, well, I think I'm going to marry her anyway. Right. So you're like, oh, he's kind of a stand-up guy. And not 10 minutes later, he's like, runs off for the fight. He's like, you don't tell me what to do. I do what I want. Takes off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a... What I would consider a standout scene in this movie, and I know that uh, I talked this over with Jeff Hewlett off air before we sat down to record this, but it's the scene where Stanley goes to the the jewelry store to buy 
a ring that Franny has already picked out. Uh, what'd you guys think <laughs> yeah. of this scene? Loved that- it. <laughs> Loved it. That scene is better than the movie. That scene's too good for the movie that it's in. I, I totally agree. I was watching it and it made me feel really awkward while the girls were in the store. And I was like, for a, for a movie to actually make me feel something, it has to have some quality to it. So I'm thinking, I was like, wow, this is really awkward. And then when the girls are dismissed and leave, the scene between Stanley and the, the, the jewelry salesman w- was really over the top. Yeah, so basically what had happened is the jewelry store guy had – he pretty much shown her a ring that was out of their price range. It was what, a $1,600, $1,600 ring? $1,600. A and a half ring. Yeah, in yeah. 1958. That's a lot of money in 1958. So, That's a lot of money now. <laughs> nah, not now. You yeah, have credit cards now. <laughs> so Stallone uh, basically dismisses the, the women, and he basically tells this guy, don't you ever show her a ring that expensive again. <laughs> He's going to put it on his tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the line, Jeff Hewlett? He's like, I, I, I uh, here lies the guy's name. I showed Franny a $1,600 ring. Yeah. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about this is Stallone was credited with additional dialogue on the Lords of Flatbush. And you can't help but think that a lot of these scenes were scenes that Stallone had sat down and sort of done a polish on. Which is makes me wonder is that why everybody else in the film is so wooden and seems like they're reading off cue cards and his seems way more natural like definitely yeah um and the other takeaway from the lords of flatbush that i think is important from a, a historical perspective is at the wedding scene at the end of the movie you have an appearance a non-speaking appearance from armand Asante, who uh, oh. big fans of Stallone will remember oh, as um, the villain from Judge Dredd. Yeah, wow. this is this is the best Stallone Armand Asante movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, now I can't wait to talk about Judge Dredd. <laughs> you got to wait a little while for that one. <laughs> yeah. So so let's um, sort of wrap up Lords of Flatbush real quick and uh, sort of, you know, give our our final take on it. And, you know, as as three Stallone fans who hadn't really seen it until about a week ago, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure um, what that really says about why you should see the movie. But uh, do you guys think that this is a movie that, uh, you know, a, a Stallone fan who hasn't seen any Stallone films, that this should be one of the ones that they seek out? If you sat through, like, if you're a very casual Stallone fan, you've seen Rocky and Rambo and, like, one or two others, I would say stay away from it. But if you've knocked out 20 Stallone movies and you're sitting around waiting for Expendables 3 to come out, yeah, I think it, then it's worth, it's worth seeing then because he, it's not a cameo. He's one of the stars, and he's really good in it. Yeah. And this is one of two real starring roles he has pre-Rocky. Yeah. Yeah. What What about you, Jeff Hewlett? Well, you know, it, it, since it's available for free on YouTube, I don't think anybody who considers himself a Stallone fan can say can excuse themselves from seeing it with any good reason, really. So, it, I think I could best describe it as a really depressed. It's like a, a version of Grease that was com- created by someone who was a manic depressive. <laughs> it, it's really rough, but you know it. There's a couple things about it that are redeeming. We talked about the jewelry scene, uh, and Sly himself throughout the the, the movie is pretty much the standout. You get to see him raising pigeons. I mean, you could tell he's a feeling guy. He really sells that well. You get to hear him singing the bass part of a doo-wop song in the (laughs) diner. Like, they're they're like, this is the predecessor to, like, uh, you know, rap battles. And he's in there with his three other buddies, and they're they're improving a doo-wop song, which is pretty cool. And for a movie that I, I think wants to be more grandiose than it is, it's definitely worth watching one time. I mean, when I got to the end of the movie, you go through the wedding scene, and I'm wondering to myself, what what exactly did I just watch? And then you launch into this photo montage. It's <laughs> oh, looking photo back montage, yeah. at parts of the movie, and you're thinking to yourself, you're watching, and there's like there's freeze frames of them like walking down the street together and hijacking a car together. And I'm thinking to myself, are these? Am I, was I supposed to be endeared to these characters in some way during this movie that this photo montage is making me reflect warmly on? <laughs> but for you, really, since it's free. 
I don't think there's much of an excuse not to watch it if you're a fan of Stallone, because there is some really good stuff by him in this movie, if you can excuse the rest. Yeah, I I think this is a movie that you you definitely have to be in the mood and ready for. You know, get some grease, throw it in your hair, slick it back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe get a, you know, make a, make a chocolate malted and uh, wait for the jewelry store scene. But, uh, um, I, I doubt I'll watch this movie again, but I'm glad that I finally got around to watching it. So we're going to switch to um, basically um, now 1975, which is probably pre-Rocky, one of the most important years of his career, um, just based on the amount of work he did. He, he worked on the TV show Police Story on an episode that aired in September called The Cutting Edge. And he played a character named Elmore Rocky Caddo. <laughs> so uh, I haven't seen the episode. I'm not sure that police story is is that easy to find. And, and then after that, I'm not sure if either guy, either one of you guys have seen police story. And if you have, please chime in. I couldn't find that one. Yeah. No, me neither. And then after that, he did an, ep- an episode of Kojak, which aired... A couple of days later, September 21st, 1975, he did the, the episode My Brother, My Enemy, where he played a character named Detective uh, Rick Daly. So uh, it had to be a, a, a sort of good week uh, in, the, in the Stallone household for uh, two TV appearances uh, from Sly. And unfortunately, um, I've seen some Kojak, but I've never seen uh, the season three episode My Brother, My Enemy. Mm. I watched it, but it was in Spanish. Oh, really? Oh. So, so what was your takeaway from it? Could you sort of follow it, what was going on? I, I read the synopsis of it, and I could kind of tell what was going on. And there's a scene, the only scene that I would like to see, there's a scene at the end on the roof for like two minutes with just like him and Telly Savalas going back and forth. Oh, yeah, and doing some acting? And like he's just, Telly Savalas, he's like a cop who like shot somebody. He's like, you know, he's a cop, takes things too far. You know, you've never seen that before in a show. <laughs> yeah. And like, he, sh- he accidentally shoots a kid or something. Okay. And Telly Savalas looks like he's just reading him the riot act and Stallone's flipping out. He's crazy, screaming and yelling. So, like, if I could find – I only need to see, like, that last two minutes. Yeah. You know, preferably in English this time. <laughs> Kojak has to be available somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if it's if it's streaming anywhere, but uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure uh, – it, it, it's definitely out there if, if, if that was a uh, sort of a, you know, the rabbit hole that we wanted to go down. And it looks like Jeff Ferry was willing to, uh, to take that trip. So that, that's, that's pretty cool. So now that brings us to Stallone's work with Roger Corman. And much like his TV appearances were uh, within the same week, we had two films that came out in the same month. April 1975. So first we're going to talk real quick. And this was one I had completely forgotten about until I sat down and started doing my prep work immediately prior to hitting record on this episode. And that was the film Capone, which also starred um, Ben Gazzara as, I believe, Capone and um, Stallone as his enforcer, Frank Needy. Now, Jeff Ferry, you said you have vague memories of this movie, but do not remember Stallone at all. I have the very vaguest memories of it. We must have had it on some VHS, you know, that we probably taped off TV or something. I know I've seen it because I remember seeing Ben Gazzara as Capone. Yeah. But, like, I was probably very young because in my house, I was allowed to watch whatever I wanted. So, (laughs) which is a whole other thing, but like, (laughs) like I know I've seen it and like, I I just cannot conjure up him in that movie at all. And even I watched the trailer before we came on here. Yeah. The trailer's like three minutes. He's not even in it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What about you, Jeff Hewlett? I can't say that I've seen, I remember seeing it. I'm not sure possible because of the HBO era that I lived in when I was younger. It it may have been on at some point and uh, my mother had watched it, but I don't recall. Yeah, yeah. So this was a, a a Roger Corman production, and Roger Corman is kind of the you know the king of the B movie, if you will. He's probably one of the most profitable filmmakers in history in terms of the you know return on the investment he gets. He makes ch- cheap films that go on to make you know pretty good money. And uh, this came out on DVD via Shout Factory in March of 2011. So I'm inclined to to look around and see if I can find it cheap on Amazon. And if I do, maybe we'll have a viewing party. 
Sounds good. <laughs> you gonna have you gonna have a scene specific commentary for Capone? Oh, maybe hey. yeah. We can do a little offshoot episode <laughs> for people that really want to you know take the advanced master class in uh, Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> So now I, I want to talk about what I, I think is really going to be the, the meat of this episode and the and the and the the part that I was really looking forward to, and I know you guys are too, and that is the film Death Race 2000, produced by uh, Roger Corman and directed by Paul Bartel, and it stars David Carradine as Frankenstein and Sylvester Stallone as Machine Gun Joe Verturbo. Now a lot of you people who might not be aware of Death Race 2000 probably know the series of prequels they did that started with the uh, film Death Race with Jason Statham. But aside from the name and, and, and the idea of Frankenstein, this is a very different film. So, guys, let's talk about this awesome, awesome movie called Death Race 2000. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you first, what are your uh, you know initial impressions of this film, Jeff Hewlett? I'm so embarrassed to say that I thought I had seen it years ago but when i watched it again i realized that i i was thinking of something else and i was sitting there with my jaw agape watching this movie and i've watched it <laughs> two times since then i loved it so much and i i i am filled with regret that i haven't watched this movie a hundred times by now well the great thing is you have time to do that now now jeff ferry um what's your death race 2000 experience uh, like, um, I think one of my friends showed it to me when I was a kid. He was a, he was a Corman fan. So, uh, it came my way. Once I realized that it was, I mean, once you're 15 minutes in the movie, you realize this is the movie that came up with the, Hey, you get a certain amount of points to run people over, <laughs> yes. which I think everyone has done in their car at some point. You know, you <laughs> see somebody on the side of the road, you're like, Oh, it's 10 points. You run that guy over. And then there it is bigger than life on the screen. It's. 10 points for this guy. It's more points if you get a child. It's more points if you get a, a woman. Yes. An old person. Yeah, An yeah. old person. <laughs> yeah. So this was a movie that I had discovered in the early to mid-90s. I was working. A friend of mine went to, 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 to film school for college. And we made a, a, a short film that, was, that ended. I played a hitchhiker. And it ended with the hitchhiker getting run over. So we were watching footage of the the hitchhiker getting run over, which was terrible. It was, you know, we basically made a scarecrow and ran that over. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so um, one of his classmates was watching it, watching our footage, and he said, have you guys seen this movie, Death Race 2000? And we said no. And he said, well, that's got to change. Um, and he, and he, he found a, you know, he, he got a copy to us. And we sat down and watched it, and I had a very similar re uh, reaction to you know the two of you, where I, I just couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, shortly after that, I showed it to my cousin, and uh, I was in college at the time and living with my grandfather, and my cousin lived right down the street. So a lot of times, it wasn't too happening at my grandfather's house, so I had to go hang out with my cousin. And we watched this movie um, basically nonstop. And the great thing about this movie is it is basically – an hour and 20 minutes, and that includes credits. So we would watch this movie, re rewind it, and start it again. We, you know, uh, then go get lunch, and then come back and do that two more times. So I, I really can't think of a movie that I've seen more times than this movie, and I probably can't count the amount of times I've seen it. But before we really get into it, let me give a quick rundown for those who haven't seen it yet. And and uh, as we have this entire episode. Uh, this will get kind of spoiler centric. So um, if you'd like, pause it, go watch the movie and then come back and have a, a great listen or let us spoil the movie for you and you're going to enjoy it anyway. But basically, the film takes place in a dystopian American society in the year 2000 where the murderous transcontinental road race has become a form of national entertainment. All right. So basically, this movie gets right into it. You got this awesome, awesome sort of like funky rock music that you know leads into a logo that flies right towards the screen and i mean at that moment you know that you're in the movie oh yeah there, there's no preamble for this this mm -hmm. is definitely a corman movie it's like <laughs> from the time that that counter starts going that movie's going <laughs> yeah. there is no fat in this movie <laughs> yeah so we basically start out right at the uh, at the track in uh, in New York City, and you've got this wonderful, wonderful like matte painting of a futuristic New York City. <laughs> I was going to mention that with a monorail behind it. 
So uh, the funniest thing about that is you've got this wildly futuristic city, and throughout the movie, you sort of got these, you know, they it looks like they went out of their way to find futuristic-looking, you know, architecture. But beyond this sort of very sort of futuristic-looking New York City that we get, <laughs> you don't really get any other future landscapes, you know, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, what do you think, Jeff Hewlett? Yeah, you don't really see you, all you really see is a lot of open road uh, up until I think the end when they're pulling into that uh, th- that complex, which is the finish of the race. It, that looks kind of quasi futuristic. I mean, now looking at it now in 2013, not quite so much. But if you were back in the mid 70s, that building kind of looked a little bit like it could be from the future. Yeah, Jeff Ferry, uh, what what are your thoughts on the futuristic look of uh, you know the world that is Death Race 2000? Well, in the futuristic world, apparently there is a lot of open road. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I also kept wondering how they were exactly keeping tabs on everybody because sometimes it seemed like they knew what was going on, and other times they really didn't. <laughs> like it was really ambiguous about how much they knew was going on in the race yeah and then it also seemed like there were different points where the racers were hearing the tv broadcasts mm-hmm. um so basically uh the, the movie starts at the starting line and you get the introducing uh, introduction of all our racers you've got um nero the hero played by sensei from the karate kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've got so uh, awesome you've got uh, uh calamity jane played by uh Sort of a, a long, uh, long time, I guess, Corman associate, um, and a Paul Bartel associate, uh, Mary Warnov. Um, you've got the the Nazi. Um, what was her name? Um, Matilda, Matilda the, Hun. the Hun. Matilda the Hun. <laughs> and then you've got from uh, Milwaukee. <laughs> yes, yeah. and a Nazi no, from Milwaukee. No effort to like sound even quasi German. She's just like, yeah, big yeah. hail. And she's got. <laughs> and so all these drivers have navigators, and hers is um, Skipper from the Love Boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we have Machine Gun Joe Viterbo, who is Sylvester Stallone, straight out of Capone, basically, doing a gangster gimmick. His car pulls up. It's got two huge machetes on either side and a machine gun in the middle. Um, just a really badass-looking car. And he he proceeds to fire at the audience when they boo him. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny when you see him do that. He's got a Tommy gun in his hand. He's standing up on top of his car and he's making the Rambo face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's make he's got the Stallone, uh, the Stallone uh, jaw going on. He's yeah. like, I'm firing a machine gun. Arr, here's my face. Yeah. It, it's amazing that 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 existed so far before we actually saw it, it emerge in the in the, the Rambo, especially Rambo 2. Yeah. You yeah. I can only he was firing blanks because they show a shot of the crowd and they're just standing there <laughs> like they this don't is a care. really bad shot yeah it's a terrible shot uh and so uh, and then our final racer is frankenstein uh and unbeknownst to him his navigator is a, a girl named annie who was part of a resistance movement who want to overthrow the existing government because they've basically gotten away from uh, american values and the race starts and they leave new york city and ultimately or instantly end up in the country yeah pretty yeah. much <laughs> and there's uh, gorgeous mountains um and at that point uh we just know that it is a race and then we have the first kill which um i believe uh stallone gets yeah he gets the first kill mm-hmm. yeah and it's a road worker he gets uh, the guy's operating a jackhammer and he gets him be- from behind and the funniest thing about this is it's an extremely violent uh, and very painful looking death he he basically um you know impales the guy on one of the the you know uh, long knives on the front of his car he flips over lands on you know lands on his head or you know and then the announcer basically calls it a clean and painless kill yeah <laughs> <laughs> over a shot of the guy laying dead on the ground yeah, yeah. So, so the funny thing about this movie is there was uh, a basic sort of disagreement between Roger Corman and director Paul Bartel about the tone of the movie. And Paul Bartel sort of wanted to go in the direction that Paul Bartel normally went in. He made you know films like Eating Raul. You know, he wanted to sort of do the dark comedy, whereas Corman sort of saw it as more of a uh, high body count, lots of blood 
movie. So you've got this real sort of uneven tone to the movie where you, you know, you've got these, you know, the, you know, these humorous sequences that culminate in pretty gruesome or for the time gruesome uh, car deaths. Yeah, because there's at least a handful of times where people are setting other people up to get killed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And well, the, the, my favorite one is where they're setting up all of the, the geriatric folks oh my God, that's in front hilarious. of the hospital, and you think Frankenstein is going to plow right through him for more points, but instead he swerves and takes out all the doctors. Yes, it was, it was euthanasia day at the, at <laughs> the geriatric <laughs> hospital. And based on uh, rule, rule changes that year, uh, elderly 75 plus were worth 100 points. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me, though. <laughs> Why they would be worth – you'd think more nimble people would be worth more. I was thinking about this, Jeff, and I was thinking that 75-plus were probably the highest points because they were least likely to be seen out and about. Is that, and that's probably why like uh, normal-age men were the least. Yeah. They were only – I think they were only 10 points they got. Yeah. Ah, that's a good good points, guys. Thanks mm-hmm. for clearing that up. Mm-hmm. And toddlers <laughs> under 12 – were 70 points and i just love the fact of the you know toddlers under 12 uh dialogue really uh like and it, it does beg the question of like who in the world would go out that day mm-hmm. yeah really why take the chance yeah like what road crew decided it would be all right to you know de- do major road work <laughs> so um one of the other uh, – some of the other highlights in, in terms of the uh, the car kills, you have the, the three greasers who are playing chicken with Calamity Jane where they've opened up a, a manhole and they're basically standing in the I middle of the road um, you know, playing chicken with her. And it has the famous line or at least famous between me and my cousin, uh, chicken in a basket, chicken in a casket. Two of the guys jump in the hole. The last guy, to, you know, uh, you know, waits an extra second, and they've already closed the manhole cover. <laughs> yeah, but then they open it back up, and then they get killed by Viterbo. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, from from the other direction. So, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. Great. It, it, it's 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 pretty cool. Um, you know, the other funny thing about this movie is so you have this resistance movement that wants to bring an end to the, the transcontinental road rape, as the, um, you know, the resistance resistance leader calls it. And uh, the funny thing about this is this is sort of where the, you know, the tone kind of shifts back and forth a little bit. And then also the history of Frankenstein. Um, it seems like Annie, the navigator isn't really that bright because it's basically revealed that Frankenstein has been assembled um, after, you know, race after race, you know, he's, you know, arms, limbs have been lost, you know, his face is, you know, so disturbing he has to wear a mask. But early on, Andy discovers that uh, it's all, you know, a ruse and that David Carradine as Frankenstein is completely healthy and it's all sort of just a gimmick and that basically they use Frankenstein's up and then put a new guy in the suit. The funny thing for me was, is there's various points in the movie where Annie basically forgets this, and he tells her, oh, you know, I don't have any taste buds uh, because I lost them in this race, and she believes him. I know, I I couldn't figure that out. Here's what I think. I I don't think he, he doesn't confirm that to her till like the third act, when he flat out says, they just bring up new Frankensteins whenever somebody gets okay. killed. Up till then, he keeps telling her, well, that's the Swiss doctors. They do great work. <laughs> like He's like, yeah, I lost that leg in 97. Yeah. I can't smell because of the crash. I lost part of my cranium in like the crash in 95. Okay, so it was more yeah. like she, she believed it because she thought that these were just really amazing doctors. Yeah, but yeah. come on. How much of a moron do you have to be? The minute you pull the mask off and you see his face is normal – then you start to say, well, okay, the face wasn't affected, but the rest of the stuff is all real. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, the other places are their places. Like, <laughs> then they take <laughs> off, <laughs> right? They t- they takes off his clothes. You think, okay, there's no marks anywhere oh, yeah. where it would look Let's like there was a forward. transplant. You could stop right there with he takes off his clothes <laughs> because <laughs> they get to St. Louis for the first stop. Yes, and they go in there, and it's time for a massage, and for no apparent reason, every woman gets naked. And, lead, and men. The navig- and, and the men. Everybody gets naked for no reason. Yep. <laughs> to get massages. Yeah. Hey, well, well, come on. It's massage time. Oh, it's Roger Corman time is what it is. <laughs> like, well, here's a way I can get all my leads naked in one scene. Yeah. And this leads to a really, really um, 
I don't want to say funny scene because it ends with a woman getting basically uh, punched. But um, Machine Gun Joe is sort of talking to Annie um, and Frankenstein walks in, sees this. He goes over to Joe's uh, navigator, who is awesome. The, the character's name is Myra, who's sort of a ditz. And uh, she says, uh, you got to get out of here. If Joe sees us talking, um, he's not going to be happy. And then um, Frankenstein sort of grabs a piece of fruit and feeds it to her and says, just say I was um, whispering sweet nothings into your ear. (laughs) At that point, he leaves. Stallone comes uh, bouncing over and he says, what do he say? What do he say? And she goes, "Uh, he said there was nothing sweet in my ear. (laughs) And at which point Machine Gun Joe responds by giving her a solid, like, left hook. He's not a great guy. (laughs) (laughs) And and then basically the other, you know, I mean, Stallone really sort of steals this movie for me. And I mean, you know, and that's not to take anything away from, you know, David Carradine's performance. But Stallone was given the meteor role. He's the villain, so he gets to chew the scene, uh, the scenery a little bit, a little bit more. And he's just got some some great lines. He goes, uh, one line he says to Myra, he goes, "Some people may think you're cute. I happen to think you're one very large baked potato." Potato, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says that, and every time I watch it, I'm just like, "What does that mean? <laughs> I don't understand." Yeah. Uh, and then also we have a great fight scene between uh, Machine Gun Joe and Frankenstein. So basically, Annie has gone down to Frankenstein's car for some reason. We're not sure what she's doing. Machine Gun Joe catches her, and he's basically going to choke her out for giving him bad directions. (laughs) Why Machine Gun (laughs) Joe would have used her directions over his navigator's directions is another story. But, um, of course, Frankenstein shows up to save the day, um, and in a great moment, Frankenstein basically uh, throws Annie under the bus and says, she, uh, she was fiddling with your car and I stopped her. Of mm. course, Joe to, uh, Frankenstein doesn't believe it. And we've got a great fight scene where basically Frankenstein just really completely dismantles uh, Machine Gun Joe. Jeff Ferry, what did you think of this fight? It was a very um, – it was like a shorter version of the They Live fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it looks like a shot in real time. And there's like a lot of time goes between like hits, like they'll get hit and they'll go to the floor, they'll yeah. get up. And I mean, it, it's fun to you're, you're basically watching Kane from Kung Fu fight Rocky. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. What about you, Jeff Hewlett? I found it to be a very enjoyable uh, fight scene because you were kind of waiting for it for a while. You knew it was eventually going to come because they're, they're, they're the rivalry between the two was it was more of a rivalry from uh, from Sly's side, I think. Than from Frankenstein. I don't think Frankenstein really cared what the other drivers felt. But uh, when it finally came to be, I think the payoff was really good. It was a long, pretty long for a fight scene. Yeah. And it seemed quite brutal to me. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, knocking down, getting up, you know, smashing over cars, throwing Sly into the workbench. He's rolling over, you know, and, and finally culminating in uh, Frankenstein's victory. I, th- I thought it was pretty satisfying, and I think it felt pretty realistic for a, a fight scene of that era. Yeah, the funny thing about it is after the fight's over, uh, Machine Gun Joe is pretty much laid out on the uh, the hood of, of his car uh, after Frankenstein held his head to one of those big knives. And Machine Gun Joe says so much for a fair, fair fight. fight. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, I don't. What does that mean? I, I don't know. He's the one that uh, he basically starts the fight with a sucker punch, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we get a, a hand-to-hand uh, sequence between Machine Gun Joe and Frankenstein, and then we get an actual on-road battle, which is pretty cool too. So yeah. at the end of the movie, the resistance, who the whole time the government are telling people is the French. Oh, that that this is an extra piece right there. So just awesome. out of nowhere, they just announce, "Hey, it's the French." Yeah, who destroyed the national economy and the telephone system? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> it's like, and that, and they every time they talk about the president, he's always in. He's in Russia. Yeah, he's at his palace in Beijing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, the resistance makes their move at the end, and this is where Frankenstein single-handedly defeats the res- uh, the resistance plane um, in his car. 
Um, and it's it's we get another great Stallone moment here where Machine Gun Joe and Myra are sort of up on a hill watching the action, and uh, uh, Machine Gun Joe says uh, the uh, the rebels are really giving it to uh, Frankenstein. <laughs> Go <laughs> rebels. <laughs> <laughs> he's sitting on the little overlook there watching all the action and then and then Andy says well aren't you going to help him he's like hell no yeah. get the hell out of here so Frankenstein dispatches the, the resistance he sort of does this, this turn into a, a cliff that I guess the plane doesn't see and causes the plane to crash resistance defeated and now it is a one on one race between Joe and Frankenstein all the other racers have been dispatched uh, to the finish line and they're they're side by side and the whole movie, uh, Frankenstein's been wearing this glove, which he revealed to Annie earlier uh, in, in, in the, uh, this, uh, the movie that uh, there was a hand grenade. Um, he had a fake hand. It was apparently the only limb he had ever lost. I, I don't know how he lost this hand. It's a hand grenade. Hand grenade. Yes. So he's got like this mannequin hand that screws on. So they're racing along. Annie says, give me your hand. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're side by side with Joe's car and she throws the hand into Myra's lap Myra begs uh, Joe to stop the car because um, she keeps saying it's a hand grenade there's a hand in the car um, and sadly when they stop um, they don't stop in enough time and they blow up and that is the end of Machine Gun Joe probably one of the most memorable cinematic villains of the 1970s and I count that against Darth Vader wow <laughs> Wow. I got to say this. I, I know that um, uh, there was some Facebook activity around you watching this movie, Jeff Hewlett, and it seemed like a lot of your uh, your friends were excited about this movie. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by how many people uh, turned out to, uh, to kind of chastise me a little bit about not having seen this movie before. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to turn that chastising on you. Okay. Mr. Craig Cohen, <laughs> by saying, and I'm a little bit surprised that you, you there's a couple of things that you, you glossed over here that I, I was hoping that you'd bring up, but I'll bring them up. All right. Well, it's our show, so so please feel free to uh, to steer this race in whatever direction you wish. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, you know, we, we skipped over a couple of the deaths of the other racers, okay. which uh, one of which I thought was really symbolic with the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner <laughs> road methodology they used <laughs> to kill Matilda. <laughs> With that fake tunnel that led her off the cliff. Yeah, Matilda and Calamity Jane. Uh, Matilda killed Calamity Jane's uh, navigator. Yes. Who was roadside doing some repair work with his 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 torso um, laid out on the road, uh, basically inviting. Oh, absolutely. Being run over. Yeah, but so they're chasing each other, and you have that uh, <laughs> uh, the, the these three guys come out and set up a detour. I mean. <laughs> How yeah. elaborate is this with this big fake tunnel that they set up? Yeah, it, it. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, <laughs> who would fall for that? Matilda. Apparently, yeah, it, so. it, it should have said acne on the side yeah. of it. Yeah, really. Which is funny because later on, uh, Calamity Jane says Matilda was one of the best drivers I knew. Yeah, well, that's not saying much. <laughs> yeah, they, but they also insinuate that they either. Calamity Jane either sleeps with her navigators or sleeps with her. Yes. Well, don't they all sleep with their navigators? Isn't that the point? That, it seems like that's just insinuated, like that you have to sleep with your navigator. Yeah, well, you have that one scene where the girl's going to sacrifice herself to Frankenstein, and she introduces herself the day before, and he says, what, do you want to sleep with me? And she says, oh, no, that is that is um, a privilege that is only extended to your navigator who worked long and hard to uh, to get that position. Yeah, and he tells her to leave because he's like, you're not going to sleep with me. You yeah. can get out. <laughs> really, skins or leave. But he's, she is a member of the St. Louis Lovers of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. A fan club. Every year, um, I guess one person volunteers to uh, sacrifice themselves for some points. And I'm not sure how many points he got for this girl. But, uh, you know, I, I know women are 10 points more than men. But it didn't seem like a really high-scoring opportunity for, for Frankenstein. It didn't seem like a score that would put him over the top. Now, I would have thought he would swerve a little bit to the left and take out that whole group of girls. Yeah. As opposed to just the one who was standing in the middle of the road sacrificing herself. <laughs> but Frankenstein's got a heart. Yes. <laughs> so what else uh, did you want to talk about, Jeff? Well, I, I, I really wanted to bring up the Matador scene. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 
I found that scene hysterical. This goofball decides that uh, Calamity Jane, her car has, um, I guess, tusks on the front or it's like a uh, bull, bull horns. It's called the bull, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Matilda says at the at the starting line, the, the person who named your car the bull only got it half right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Apparently they mean shit. Right? Yeah. But- so we've got this goofball who decides to basically duel with Calamity Jane. He's got his red, you know, sort of cape. And he's taunting her. Yeah, pretty much. And and it's it, it's like a makeshift uh, bullfight while as she's kind of spinning her car around to try to take him out, and he's kind of moving to the side and hanging the little cape out and drawing <laughs> it over her car as she drives by. But she must miss him five times. At I least. Mean, she... <laughs> yeah, and then she somehow gets behind him. And that's all she wrote. Yeah, yeah, and and that, yeah, that is a, a sort of a, a great um, a great death, if you will. Um, we also have Nero the hero's death, which is he comes upon a picnic, and for some reason, uh, it was a picnic staged by the resistance, yeah. and for some reason, he thinks they would all scatter and leave the leave baby, the baby. Uh, which yeah. is really a doll a that's just got uh, dynamite taped to it. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny, man. I was dying as he's pull- – you, you get a close-up of this baby whose face is obviously plastic. Man, I felt bad because he went out so early in the game. Yeah. I was hoping Crease would survive longer. <laughs> <laughs> he was going after that baby. No mercy. No, no mercy. <laughs> Mercy's, Mercy's for the for week. The week. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically uh, the movie ends uh, – or, or, or Jeff, were you done? Oh, I, I could go on for hours. I'll, I'll talk about this movie all night with you guys. Oh, great, great. <laughs> but basically it gets to the end and we learn that Frankenstein, um, he, he was raised to be a racer. He has as much disdain for the president as the resistance and he wanted to win the race so he could shake the president's hand and destroy him. Um, he lost his hand grenade, so they have to figure out another solution. Annie puts on the, the Frankenstein suit, which fits her um, Brilliant. miraculously. <laughs> And she goes to stab the president, but before she can, her great grandmother, Thomasina Payne, leader of the resistance, shoots her, um, which was all a diversion. And Frankenstein uh, peeks up from behind the wheel of his car and basically scores the president for the final score of the death race. In his black leather underwear. (laughs) Yes. Um, He marries Annie. He abolishes the the transcontinental road race, which gets Junior Bruce, the uh, one of the announcers, very, very mad. And uh, Frankenstein (laughs) scores him, um, which really seems like uh, it would be against everything him and the resistance believed uh, after uh, discontinuing the road race. But I guess uh, he was so upset. Or he was pissing off Frankenstein and Annie so much on their wedding day, but there was no choice but to run him over. <laughs> and one final score. <laughs> and it's funny how the other journalists sort of fall right in line. Junior is giving uh, Frankenstein a, a hard time, and uh, the one journalist says, uh, you know, uh, let it go at this point. This is what the president wants. And the guy's like, but this is the race, man. <laughs> I, th- I found it quite fascinating that Frankenstein became the president just by winning the race and taking the president out. Yeah, I guess in that future, if you kill the president, you are the new president. Yeah, you keep what you kill. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um, that is Death Race 2000. And um, in terms of Sylvester Stallone's career, um, this is really, you know, coupled with Lords of Flatbush. Um, this is really ground zero for his career, and I would say that Death Race 2000 is a movie that a lot of Stallone fans remember uh, him for. Definitely, definitely. And yeah. I think if you haven't seen this movie, you owe it to yourself to seek it out and watch it. I- I'm going to be an evangelist for this movie from now until the end of time. <laughs> yeah. This has rocketed up my Stallone charts. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to uh, being available on DVD, you can also watch this if you have Amazon Prime or um, Netflix. Uh, I'm not 100% on Hulu, but it is on two two of the major streaming services, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was on Hulu. And if you've got an extra 80 minutes, or if you're adventurous, 160 minutes, sit down and watch this movie <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> Twice. So that basically brings us to 1975. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about related to the early days of Sylvester Stallone's career? I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered everything. I mean, we did his minor work from there and hit his two major films that 
you know, you're hoping anyone might have seen. I, I mean, I would assume your highest percentage is going to be Death Race 2000. Yes, yes. Jeff Hewlett, any final thoughts? I think this, uh, as, as tough a watch as Lords of Flatbush is, I think it's very redeemed by Death Race 2000, and it's, it makes a really great launching point for what I am anticipating to be a great series of shows. I think we have a lot of great stuff coming up to discuss, and, and I'm really looking forward to watching Death Race again this week. Oh, awesome, yeah. So what we're going to be doing is a uh, next episode, this will be a, a once-a-month podcast, and next month we will be talking about Rocky 1 and 2. Uh, so we will devote the entire episode to talking about the sort of career-making movie Rocky and its sequel. And until then, um, we hope you enjoyed listening, and uh, again, if you haven't been over at the ACPN Facebook page yet, please join us over there for all discussions Slycast. Uh, Jeff Ferry, thank you so much for uh, for being here today. Thanks very much for not being a baked potato. <laughs> and Jeff Hewlett, uh, we will talk to you next time. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so thank you, uh, everyone. And until next time, this is Slycast.